Welcome to ReachMD. This special edition of the Global Women's Health Academy series is sponsored by Topek Global and supported by Merck KGAA, Darmstadt, Germany. Welcome to Where We Are and Where We Are Going, the Future of ART. Presented by Dr. Marcos Horton, co-director and founder of Pregna Medicina Reproductiva and the past president, Argentinian Society of Reproductive Medicine from Buenos Aires, Argentina. This lecture was recorded during a live meeting recently held in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Thank you, Robert, and thank you for this invitation. I'm very pleased to be here. When I was uh, given this presentation, I was really happy, and, and it took me through a, a real uh, journey on uh, reproductive medicine. I really enjoyed it. And you, you all know it all started here. In fact, it started before this, but uh, 1978 is a critical milestone in reproductive medicine with the birth of Louise Brown that revolutionized the area. When you see all these milestones, it, it's really amazing. We all know what happened in these years, but especially in the 80s, uh, there were, the science was developed in, in uh, reproductive medicine. A lot of procedures were really uh, started at that time. The tools were developed, the uh, aspiration needles, aspiration techniques, the first transvesical, afterwards the ultrasound-guided transvaginal uh, aspiration. So if you see here like blastomy biopsy in 1980 by Handyside, some of the ultra-rapid freezing embryos by Trounson that have to work in vitrification early with the bovines and later with the humans. And it's amazing to see how quickly that developed in, in ART afterwards during the 90s, especially uh, with the appearance of ICSI, especially in 1992. That was a big milestone that we uh, uh, counted in reprodu reproductive medicine. PGD started there, and uh, some of the first uh, uh, birth in blastocyst biopsy, for example, and all the development of new drugs, the recombinant gonadotropins, new protocols that were developed and were really important uh, in re reproductive medicine in ART. Um, all the, the culture media development that we see now started, especially in those years with, uh, with uh, some of the, the culture media that we still have and has been developed uh, nowadays too. And uh, when we see the, uh, this last 10 years, it's, it's also amazing. Uh, some of the technologies that we have today, and they're still um, under assessment, but you still will see how after FISH was a question, especially uh, with the Mastenberg paper in 2007, and the comprehensive uh, chromosome uh, screening tests were developed later, where we will see today uh, some of, of these uh, new promising results. Some that were probably a little bit frustrating for the time being, but will probably uh, will have new results in the future with targeted metabolomics or maybe metabolomic profiling with, uh, with some other method. Uh, well, time-lapse we'll have uh, 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 Marcos tell us about later and all the 
development of uh, especially secure and, and, and uh, uh, safer protocols with antagonists and uh, all the, the FSH uh, new protocols, the GNRH triggering, but the GNRH triggering has been uh, very useful lately and we'll have uh, new information about that also. So uh, tailoring stimulation, I will talk a little bit about that. But when you see it in a timeline, it's really, it's really amazing to see all these things. And it's always been the goal to have a healthy baby and uh, we're moving towards having really a, a healthy ba baby born from a transfer of a single, ideally euploid embryo that we will uh, probably be successful in doing in, in the next year. So we are focused now in, in safety and efficacy and that's, that's the main goal nowadays. We all know that ART is a multi-step process that starts with ovarian stimulation. It really starts before that. We have to see how to stimulate correctly and now we have the tools to do that. Uh, oocyte retrieval, timing of that, and then the lab work, fertilization, embryo culture, and embryo selection especially, and then the embryo transfer technique itself and uh, uh, the results, of course. About ovarian stimulation, um, especially uh, I will emphasize on antagonists. Uh, we all know that after uh, the, the latest review and meta-analysis, we know now the, the antagonist uh, fear has gone away. Uh, we know antagonists are very uh, good. They, they are safer than agonists and the previous protocols, and it it's, uh, permits the GnRH agonist trigger, and that is uh, a, a very good step forward towards safety. Uh, some new information about how to, uh, the dosage of gonadotropins, uh, especially with the works of Lamarck and Sunkara, and the dosagrams that I will show you. And, uh, we all are very frustrated about poor responders. I think it's an epidemic now. Uh, we all have it. Uh, and we, we, when I started working in IVF, uh, the, the average age of, of our patients was around 31 or 32. It's now in my clinic 38.4. So that's really bad for us and for patients. So we have to uh, turn around that. It's difficult because it's a social and cultural uh, problem. But we have some tools now to uh, define these patients because even though the Bologna criteria can be criticized and there's always a problem when you put uh, 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 you a mark to, to, uh, to say this patient is a poor responder or, or not, uh, we have to have a uniform criteria to see the results in, in the same population of patients. So we could uh, see in, in the future if these protocols are better. Uh, there are ongoing trials. There are some new uh, trials on testosterone. We don't know if go it's going to work, but we have to see what to do with these patients. This is an, an interesting uh, thing about dosing gonadotropins, and it, uh, I've been using this uh, for the last year now. And uh, even though 
it, it could be improved uh, when you think about the starting dose of gonadotropins. Nowadays, we have the tools to uh, correctly assess the ovarian reserve. So uh, you can do it through uh, antral follicle count, or you can do it through AMH levels. And we know that uh, this has been criticized too because the AMH, um, different uh, kits have different uh, standards, and, and that is a problem. But you can count on antral follicle count very reliably. And you can tailor stimulation, and it's been very useful for me especially to avoid hyperstimulation. You can tailor stimulation if uh, you take in, uh, the antral follicle count or AMH levels jointly with age. So age and ovarian reserve testing is paramount to tailor stimulation. We know that the, the, the main determinants for ovarian response. So then you go up and then you go down to the FSH basal levels and you get the uh, starting dose. Of course, we're talking about recombinant uh, gonadotropins that you can tailor and you can really um, uh, give a, a, a dose that can be uh, with new devices and the pens that we have available now, you can really uh, dose correctly. Of course, there are a lot of ART lab improvements from air quality and, and culture media incubators going from 20% uh, oxygen to tri-gas incubators and now time-lapse systems, closed uh, automated control systems. Um, we have had difficulty in, in grading embryos, uh, so we have, we've had in the past grading scores, and, and that's, that has been uh, good for building up models, but now we have time-lapse systems and dynamic grading, and of course, another revolution with vitrification in the lab and all of the omics. That is a really promising uh, quantitative and automated tool to monitor embryo development. It improves embryo selection. There are still uh, some uh, questions about its clinical application that will probably uh, be uh, answered in the next uh, years because new algorithms and, and, and ways to uh, really select the embryo will be coming in. And if you look at the time-lapse ongoing trials, and uh, Marcos's work has been recently published, and there's some uh, already finished, uh, but still unpublished. Uh, and if you look at that paper from 2014 with the embryo scope, he, he's shown that uh, the, it was a randomized uh, trial with embryoscope versus a conventional incubator. And you can see that uh, there were better ongoing pregnancy rates and implantation rates. And uh, if you see there, um, the, the TMS group, the time-lapse group, and the control group, you can see differences in pregnancy rates and, and, and in miscarriage rates too. Um, and even though uh, you can see the, some differences in the quality of of embryos that has been uh, probably attributed to the fact that the embryos are left undisturbed, but we will know about that in Marcos's uh, talk. There has been some, you don't have to see and understand this uh, slide or the next one, but just to tell you that the first uh, cleavage uh, divisions are very important to establish checkpoints that could really select an embryo, maybe in day two already for transfer, or, or you can see uh, how 
all of these checkpoints are really in the first uh, two days that could uh, provide you valuable information to uh, select an embryo for transfer. So um, there is very promising information about this. Uh, the embryos are, are left undisturbed and that is very important and will probably be the future in IVF just to not open the incubator anymore. That's very important for the embryos. There's some questions about um, the, the, the clinical validation and there has to be some uniformity in nomenclature and uh, there has been a proposal on that and you obviously don't have to go through this either but the TO would be the, the, the beginning of all the checkpoints and TO is the time where ICSI is performed and I will go through that later about ICSI and IVF. Uh, if you go uh, to an employee in reproduction, it's uh, a, a very, we all know that, and we, we now know uh, with, with confident data that it is extremely common, for, uh, the unuploidy rate in the early embryo. It could be as high as 60 or 75% in a 40-year-old or 42-year-old uh, woman. So we know it's very important, and it's responsible for recurrent implantation failure, for recurrent miscarriage, and also in male factor, uh, sperm or chromosomal aneuploidies uh, are very important and could impact embryo development. So I will walk you through a little bit of aneuploidy uh, <coughs> screening after the Mastenberg paper that showed that uh, fish in PGD could be even uh, bad for the embryos because pregnancy rates were low and that was uh, very uh, critical. We all know that fish has pitfalls and limitations. Then you can see there the, the main uh, problem being its low sensitivity and also uh, the, the technique itself that was really uh, assessing uh, a few chromosomes and now we have a comprehensive chromosome screening. It is obviously depending on the operator experience and that has been one of the critics of the Mastenberg paper. The number of cell biopsies is low. And of course, we have mosaicism that is obviously going in, in, to be a problem also in day five, but probably uh, less of that. And when comprehensive chromosome screening came in, uh, different platforms uh, are presented here, and RACGH is still used. And it's, uh, we're very confident on, on these results too. It has been validated against fish and uh, it could be 2% uh, non-informative, but it's a very useful um, technique for screening and also for translocations. And then we have SNPs and NGS lately that has been also a new technology that is really impacting our practice because it's, it's now quicker and cost-effective to do uh, chromosome screening and w our, our own clinic is also doing more and more uh, screening of uh, comprehensive screening now. Still mosaicism is a, is a problem uh, that, that is something that is natural so uh, we will still have that in the future but we'll have to deal with it and with new technologies. So this is the way you see RACGH and the profile with the new techniques there. So just to show you also the randomized clinical trials that, that, that is really important to do and we've learned that after the FISH experience that was 
done without very good information on, on, on its uh, effectiveness. And uh, we have ongoing trials and some that are, that are already finished. And basically, they all show an increase in clinical pregnancy rate and implantation rate and a reduction in abortion rate and obviously a reduction in time to pregnancy because those patients uh, will get pregnant faster uh, when you transfer a euploid embryo. <clears throat> Some of the results are there with the, the percentage of abnormal embryos depending on the population. This is a paper uh, uh, with, with advanced maternal age, so you have a high percentage of abnormal embryos, but the pregnancy rates are all better with chromosome screening and the miscarriage rate is lower. So what about oocyte cryopreservation? Another revolution in our field uh, with the beginning of vitrification that has been used for a lot uh, uh, of time in, in animals, in bovines, and after the Kuwajama method was uh, introduced, uh, we all used uh, different variations of this technique now, but it was really important in, in that year to start with the vitrification and try it in, in human oocytes and embryos. And nowadays we don't think anymore about uh, slow uh, cryopreservation. We almost everybody uses vitrification now. So this was really a, 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 another milestone in, in medicine and reproductive medicine. This is very difficult, sorry, but just to show you that the randomized clinical trials comparing fresh and vitrified eggs uh, show the same results. Some of them are not uh, well designed because they were randomized with sibling oocytes, but the ones that they were designed to see clinical outcomes, you can see the same outcomes between fresh or vitrified eggs. So now it's another thing that is changing our uh, practice and we are using more and more vitrification and, and, and IVF after vitrification for any reason, for social reasons, for oncologic reasons, so for medical reasons that we need to vitrify eggs in a hyperstimulated patient, so for whatever reason we, we are doing it. And this is another thing that, that, will, uh, that has changed a lot and will be uh, changing in the future because there is a, um, a, ten, a trend in the, in the world, and I'll show you some uh, data, that the ICSI, some, patient, some clinics are doing ICSI for all, and I know in, in Latin America and, and Brazil too, uh, there is uh, very low use of IVF anymore. But it could have some advantages because you need to master the technique and to learn it for some other reasons in the lab, like blastomy biopsy. So you need invasive technologies to be mastered by the embryologist. It standardizes and organizes ART labs, but it also can have overlapping tasks that are very common in a, in a busy lab. And it, it can be overwhelming and burden to human resources. There's some concerns about safety. Uh, the follow-up of, uh, of patients and, and, and infants can be confusing. And basically, there's no evidence of benefit in terms of clinical pregnancy rate, implantation rates, or abortion rates when you compare ICSI or IVF in a non-male infertility population. But if you see the trends from the ICMART uh, report, 
uh, and the green part of the pie is ICSI and the blue one is IVF. So it's almost 60-40 now, but some places like Latin America and, and it will be higher. And if you see it, the latest report of Red Lada, it's 85-15. So really, uh, I think we are the only ones <laughs> in Argentina doing IVF anymore. Uh, but uh, this is really a, a trend, an important trend. So now ICSI has become a tool. It's not a treatment anymore, it's a tool. And, and probably PGS will be a tool also, and time-lapse is another tool. So we have to see ICSI as a tool because there were past indications that we all know, the, the severe male factor, um, the, the use of testicular or epididymal uh, sperm, repeated IVF failure, etc., etc. And now we have new indications, probably time-lapse itself. Uh, we, we don't know what is the T0 of IVF if you do time-lapse, but we do know we don't know the T0 in, in ICSI, the moment that you inject uh, the sperm. We need to do ICSI with cryopreserved oocytes, so we're doing more and more vitrification. We're using more uh, ICSI for that. And this is something really... Uh, um, common. I mean, everybody says, uh, just in case, even a poor responder, you only have one or two eggs. And that is not backed up but, uh, by evidence. In fact, uh, when, when you see our own population and we really do IVF and, and we do only ICSI for male factor and we have a 50-50 spread, if you see uh, four years uh, from now, back four years, you see uh, IVF and ICSI in our own clinic is really 50-50. Uh, and when you see the fertilization rate is obviously lower for ICSI because we only do ICSI for male factor and severe male factors. Uh, but when you see the, the clinical pregnancy rate is not different, the implantation rate is not different. And if you see a low responder, in fact, they have failed fertilization more with the ICSI group and not so much in the IVF group. So we don't personally use uh, ICSI for a poor responder when the, the, the woman has a few eggs because, in fact, the failed fertilization rate is higher with ICSI. So uh, embryo transfer, this, it has improved a lot. There's a lot of factors that influence embryo transfer depending on the operator, the, the clinician, the, the biologist, the catheter used, the, the, the time you, you, uh, you used to transfer, uh, the transfer media. Uh, everybody has uh, seen this improvement, the use of ultrasound guidance, and uh, also the, the mid to upper cavity uh, placement. So there's a lot of improvement in this, and everybody recognizes this as a critical step. We're moving also to single embryo transfer. This uh, uh, Cochrane review shows that uh, pregnancy rate uh, is lower with single embryo transfer, but when you consider two uh, consecutive treatments versus uh, two uh, fresh or one fresh plus one frozen, the pregnancy rates are the same, and this has been shown uh, years ago by the Scandinavian uh, countries like Finland and Sweden, and uh, it's probably going to be uh, the, the way we go in the future, and it's, it's being increasingly used. The freeze-all strategies, I will talk a little bit in, in my other uh, presentation today. Uh, we all know about the, the physiology of this, and uh, that the embryo uh, will be a better place in a, in a more physiological endometrium. 
But we still have uh, some uh, regards on improving pregnancy rates. There is a big discussion about this. I don't think there is uh, clear uh, clinical data uh, with enough strength to move to freeze-all strategies, but evidently it's something that is uh, increasingly used now, and it could be a way to go in the future. If you look at uh, the, the review and meta-analysis, uh, they started with a lot of papers and they finished up with only three papers. And if you see that uh, those three papers involve 600 cycles and good prognosis patients, they were, most of all, they were hyper-responders or normal responders from 26, 27 to 33 years old. So I don't know if everybody has those type of patients, but we don't anymore. So we don't know if those results can be uh, the same in a, in a poor responder, for example. So we need to see if, if these, uh, uh, this strategy is for all or we have to uh, individualize a patient that would benefit from this. If you see their results, one of the papers has been retracted already from publication. It was the Aflatonian paper. So it's included in the meta-analysis. If you take out that paper that has been published in JARG and then was retracted because of methodological problems, you only uh, have the Shapiro paper and the other papers are not randomized and the Shapiro paper is randomized, but it's very uh, low number. So we don't know if really it's going to be uh, the way to go and who will really benefit from this. This was retracted and one of the papers was, sorry, was a retrospective. Um, so this was recently published in, in Focus on Reproduction in the, the latest uh, uh, issue. And uh, if you see the, 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 the past and future perceptions of ART treatment cycle, you will have mainly now GnRH antagonist protocols. You will probably have uh, moved towards GnRH agonist for final oocyte maturation, vitrification of all embryos. We'll see what happens with that. Single embryo transfer probably will be the way to go. And we are uh, pointing towards an OHSS 0% clinic, and that is mainly because we have antagonist protocols and GnRH triggering. And we have to go uh, the way to lower the multiple pregnancy rate. So just to finish my presentation now, just uh, take you the way you can now uh, really uh, assess ovarian reserve with AMH and enteral follicle count. You put the ovarian reserve with the age of the patient and you will have a prognosis. It's very important to uh, give the expectations of treatment to patients so you, you will see if that patient goes on to IVF or maybe egg donation. And you can tailor stimulation with all that information for a high, a medium, normal, or low responder. And when you get the eggs collected, you can go directly to IVF or maybe you can go directly to vitrification and then to IVF or ICSI. And whatever technique you're, you're doing, then you have embryo culture and non-invasive selection with time-lapse systems maybe metabolomics or targeted metabolomics, non-invasive genomics in the future, then you can vitrify the embryos in day two, day three, or day five, then you can do some comprehensive chromosomal screening and then get a euploid blastocyst to transfer. Maybe you have to vitrify or maybe you have no embryos to transfer and that is very stressing for the patient and the doctor 
but you have to uh, understand that we, 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 we can't transfer embryos that we really don't know uh, they're, 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 if they're healthy or not. And we have the tools now to learn about that. And if you go to egg donation, it's, it's been also shown that you can vitrify the eggs or use them in fresh. And uh, whatever you do, you, you will be uh, transferring a, also a blastocyst, a single blastocyst. And then it's very important to follow up. There's a lot of information on follow up, uh, but most of that information are from big registries that are not detailed in the population, and we have to have better information on neonatal follow up. So maybe the future will be a completely automated uh, system, closed. This has been recently published in a, in a, a beautiful paper that. Uh, um, in Human Reproduction Update by Garner and Marcos and Carmen Rubio and Nathan Treff. And uh, probably uh, you will have uh, a system that is closed and, and that will have all the needs that the embryo needs in, in different uh, uh, developing uh, moments. And you have the time lapse here. You have probably microfluidics, analysis of some metabolites, biomarkers. So you won't have to open your incubator probably, and uh, you have some non-invasive genomics that there are some new technologies that could provide that. Maybe microRNAs like uh, Capalbo is doing, or maybe some new technologies. So the future is, is bright for us, and it's very exciting to see uh, that this could be something maybe in, in the near future for us. Thank you very much. This has been a special edition of the Global Women's Health Academy series on ReachMD. The preceding program was sponsored by Topek Global and supported by Merck KGAA, Darmstadt, Germany. If you have missed any part of this program, visit ReachMD.com GWHA. Thank you for listening.